0: I discovered about 10 minutes ago that this machine reformats your slides, FYI. (laughs) Uh, Let's see, so I'm um, Connie White. I'm a general practitioner uh, in Portland, Oregon. I'm sort of a recovering mixed animal, equine, ER and ICU, because that's how old I am, Um, although not quite as old as some. So I couldn't find the placeholder slide, so this is it. All right, okay, so I am talking about treatment patterns of two different eye diseases, as well as clinical decision making uh, in general, and special, general practice and specialist vets. And I've done this work as part of a practicum in a master's program that's a U.S. program, but um, thank God the Center for Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine um, sponsored this work and in fact started this work. So I'm actually coming into a project that had many other hands of which they're all important. But particular thanks to Marnie Brennan who's sitting in the back of the room for being such a great person. All right, Um, so I want to actually just talk about why we would be interested in this first. So it's known, it's well documented in human medicine that there's an inverse correlation between the quality and quantity of evidence and the amount of variation that's seen. That's particularly true in my country which has a fantastic fee-for-service medical system. Um, where you see huge variation in places where there's less evidence and less variation in places where there is more evidence. That's work done by the Dartmouth group. And as a corollary to that, if you see a lot of variation, then you may, by implication, think, okay, aha, this is a place where we don't really know very much. Also on the human side, um, it turns out that variation is not only driven by uncertainty but also by specialist affiliation, so specialty groups treat things differently, and by social network. So these are important things. Um, Finally I'd like to sort of just touch on the question of whether surveys can represent new evidence. Um, It's been true in human medicine that they have started to use sort of EMR surveys to fill in evidence gaps. Um, We are not in a profession where we're going to have great gobs of high-quality evidence coming at us for the reasons that um, Steve said its money, money, money. Um, But if you're unprepared to accept that they might be new evidence, can they at least be used to help us benchmark our practice? So what we do, what we just wanted to look at, the current management of four eye conditions. We've reported in at conferences uh, work on dry eye and glaucoma. So today I'm talking about cherry eye, so prolapse Nyx's glands, and feline herpes virus keratitis, which I'm going to stumble over as well. Then we also looked at factors cited by veterinarians for their clinical decision making, and I think that becomes a rather messy subject. What did we do? Well, we did cross-sectional surveys. This is actually a bit old, uh, elderly data, um, but then they found a sucker from the U.S. to look at it. Uh, (laughs) Using two convenient samples of vets, one was from a mailing list, the email list of people who wanted to be contacted by the center. Um, Those guys got an online questionnaire, and then people who attended the British Association of Veterinary Ophthalmologists, the Bravo Conference, got basically the same questionnaires, two different years. I'm talking about with Cherie and and FHV um, 2012 survey, when we talk about decision factors, we've lumped the GPs from both years, used only one specialist year, because those were probably gonna be the same people. So for the cases that I'm talking about, we gave them two vignettes. One was a nine-month-old Lhasa named Lola, Uh, who was a showgirl? no, just kidding. Uh, She had cherry eye, new onset cherry eye, and then a three-year-old domestic short hair named Scooby who had herpes keratitis, and he had a history consistent with that and some clinical signs that were very classic. To avoid confusion, the people were given the diagnosis, right, so we didn't make them guess what is this. So then we asked them, you know, who are you, not your name necessarily, but are you a man, are you a woman specialist, how old, how long have you been in practice? Uh, What would you do for these cases? What would you do if everything failed? Anything else you might want to recommend? Treatments you can't get? Sources of information, which I'm just gonna touch on, and then factors used in clinical decision making. Right, Uh, so here's who answered the survey. In 2012, we had 67 specialists, and by that we mean people who either had a certificate or a diploma in um, ophthalmology or were training for one of those things, Uh, and then 259 GPs. Uh, In that group, there were no significant differences in in some key demographics. Uh, When we put in the 2011 GPs, it makes them just a bit younger than the specialists. All right. So when we talk about variation, and we say variation may reflect poor evidence, I do feel like I need to just give you just a quick thing about what do we know about cherry eye. Uh, Marnie reminds me to t- remind everybody that cherry eye, is a, the nictitans gland, is sitting in that third eyelid. Uh, it's on the uh, uh, bulbar surface of the, sort of attached to the cartilage, and sometimes it loses it. It's, it's a bit like me. We lose our connective tissue attachments and pop up. Um, There are no overt guidelines, so it's not as if the ACVO has gotten together and said, this is what we should all be doing, Um, but there may be some tacit guidelines for what we should do. Uh, We are just finishing a rapid review. There are seven different techniques in the English peer-reviewed literature. There are ten out there that I can find, Um, but two are sort of commonly taught. That's the Morgan pocket up at the upper right and then the periosteal tack that was first described by. Stanley and Caswan. But if you read any ophthalmology text, what they tell you is because these were all published as case series, it's just a matter of personal preference. Do the one you feel like doing uh, without any clue as to which might be more effective. We can say, based on a very small study by Morgan and her colleagues in the early 90s, that excision may be linked to a higher rate of dry eye. All right. So, everybody gets this case of Lola, and uh, they're asked, what do you wanna do for Lola's poor little popped out eyelid? Um, Very comforting in some sense, in that we all remember GPs or GP specialists or special interest group. Everybody wants to um, do surgery on Lola to replace her prolapse gland, but the GPs, more than a quarter of us, want to do some sort of medical trial before we get there, most commonly being, let's try some topical steroids, or let's try just keep pushing it back in. That's actually worked for me on a bulldog. Um, Fewer of the specialists suggested that. Not a huge difference. Anything that's bolded is significantly different with multiple um, comparison correction. Excision as an option... 12% of us are already ready to cut that gland out as a possibility, not as the only one that we offer. Excision recommended, um, not huge numbers. Interestingly, the Morgan pocket, when people said what they were going to do was the most common technique specified. Uh, Of course, my people, GPs, half of us said we would just do some sort of replacement. All right. What happens when the surgery doesn't work? And this is how I feel, because I just had one fail recently. Um, most of us, again, we want to replace it, but if you look at the GPs, now more than a quarter of us are like, right, yep, I could also cut that gland out. Um, very few of the specialists. Um, in terms of excision as the only possibility, that number stays the same. It's still very small numbers. But here's the interesting thing to me, is that the Morgan pocket becomes less popular, right? And Procedures involving a periosteal anchor uh, triple. So for people who like graphs, because I do, if you look to the left, that's the first surgery. General practitioners are blue, specialists are gray. Pocketing is, look at, how, look at how popular that is for those specialists. Anchoring techniques, very low. Excision considered, low. And then my favorite surgery, unspecified, which just probably describes many of the surgeries that I do. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, But then we go to the second surgery. Pocket has really dropped quite a bit. Um, And anchoring techniques, and I'll tell you what I mean by that in a minute, really pops up. Excision, again, uh, more than doubles for the GPs. And then again, my favorite surgery, unspecified. When I say anchoring, what I mean is we got lots and lots of other sorts of, you know, I'm going to just do a periosteal attack. I'm going to do a pocket and attack. I'm going to do a pocket plus or minus attack. I'm going to do maybe one or the other of those, but just every every single response had many more, many more of the responses had periosteal anchoring in there. Right, so other recommendations. First of all, that's my hometown of Portland, Oregon. I think you all should come visit. Um, We don't know when the volcano is going to blow, but we think it will. Um, Very few other recommendations, so only really four major ones. The specialists were a bit more likely to talk about how this eye should be monitored for dry eye and, and even replace eyes are at higher risk, we think, um, they were slightly more likely to talk about, I'm going to warn the owner that the other eye could blow, um, but very few people said, I'm going to do a prophylactic surgery in the unaffected eye, and, and I, I just think this is interesting. Discuss risk of surgical failure, about a third of people did that, and I thought it was going to matter to age, because I, as I'm older, I start really cautioning people, but age actually didn't make a difference. So. Uh, Just a summary, most people said, yep, let's replace it. But more of my people said, I want to try some medical things before I go there. Um, And there is a real trend that first opinion vets were more likely to suggest excision, although not in huge numbers. And salvage surgery definitely garnered many more periosteal anchoring suggestions in some, some form. This is Smith Rock, also in Oregon. Beautiful place. All right, we're switching to cats. I love cats. Um, we have a clinic cat who just beat up uh, one of our post-op spays on her way out the door last couple weeks ago, so uh, this, this one resonated with me. Oh, cats they are dre- they're d- dreadfully hard patients in so many ways. So let's talk about FHV1 keratitis in terms of what do we know, because again, that's motivating the variation. And this should have just been a short slide that said we don't know much, right? because we really know very little. Uh, almost all of the antiviral drugs have just in vitro evidence, very little in vivo evidence. There's no guidance on when or where or what to use for topical antibiotics. I should say famcyclovir and cidofovir have slightly high, they have some in vivo evidence. Lysine, I have my own opinion from my own appraisal, but if you look at um, some of the reviews that were available to these vets, um, these are just quotes from three different reviews, no evidence of benefit data confusing, mixed results. Well that's really helpful if you're a GP. Um, And then the vaccines have non-sterilizing immunity. And the guidelines do vary a bit in terms of who and when and how often to vaccinate. And I'm aware of no data that tells us what the vaccines do for chronic carriers. Remember the herpes keratitis, we, I, I typically see it more in a conjunctivitis situation, but Scooby had the classic dendritic ulcers, um, and he had been painful for about a, a week with serous ocular discharge. Okay, what do people want to do? Well, about three-quarters of us wanted to do a topical antibiotic. It didn't matter who you were. About a third of us wanted to do a topical antiviral. Again, it didn't matter who we were. Um, 30 to 44% wanted to do a topical lubricant. And then the next two suggestions were quite small, a topical NSAID, a few GPs, none of the specialists, and autologous serum, which um, now that I know that you and I went to the same school, this is how I was trained to put autologous serum in. Full disclosure, this is actually equine herpes virus. It's very hard to find a scanning micrograph of um, the feline variant. Uh, topical antibiotics. I think this is a bit boring in some sense, in that um, it didn't mean that I had to learn what fusidic acid is, because it, it does not exist in the U.S. Um, so that was the most popular choice. Chloramphenicol was the second most co- popular, but then you have, you know, all sorts of other little clindamycins, ofloxacin, tetracyclines. I think this would m- change in the U.S. because we, you would fi- probably find us using some different things. Um, I love this cat in the conehead. All right, but here's where we get into some interesting differences. Um, Topical antivirals, you can see, again, GPs are blue. Acyclovir was clearly the big choice for GPs, Um, and not so much for specialists. And then we have Gencyclovir, Doxyuridine, which is, again, what I was trained with. But then look at Trifluorothymidine huge numbers of specialists compared to the GPs. So there is a difference. I just looked on Morefields when uh, last week and they still don't have Sadovavir in this country that I can find. We have it through compounding pharmacies in our country. I love, I'm going to go home and put a nose ring in, ring in my cat after this trip. Right. Um, see, Americans have culture. We just change, change it up a bit. Uh, so systemic therapy recommendations, again, quite different. So if you look at famcyclovir, which I must admit I use, um, GPs, very few people, and the famcyclovir data was out there, um, well published by the time this survey was done. Very few GPs said, right, I'm going to do oral famcyclovir, whereas more than half of the specialists suggested that. Lysine again, about a quarter of the GPs, about half of the specialists. And then oral NSAIDs, when stated or when justified, it was usually because they perceived that that cat was in pain. And then the next two interferon, a handful of each group, and oral antibiotics, um, about one in ten. But here's something interesting. More than a quarter of the respondents did say, hey, I have treatments that I can't get, that I want. Not everybody said what those were, but when they did, it was primarily antivirals. Um, So I think that's of interest. Okay, now, these are sort of two slides that are going to teach you nothing other than the fact that I think we were a bit confused about this condition. I should say also that when we asked them what they would do for the initial, if, 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 if he relapsed, they were just going to do the same thing. That was the bulk of them. So I only... I only had five recommendations that garnered more than five percent of the respondents, and this is what they were: discuss recurrence, right? You know, let everybody know, let the owners know, Scooby's probably going to get this again. Recommending regular vaccination, the GPs were more likely to say that, and that may be kind of about their co- practice context, not what they believe. Discussing stress: this is my own cat; he is not stressed, and he's morbidly obese without any any success on my part to make him lose weight. Um, Conjunctival swab testing, which is a bit of a mess in terms of how to interpret these things. Not many people. And then a few people wanted to isolate Scooby from all the other cats in the household because they thought he was an infectious disease menace. But I had 29 other recommendations. I just want to give you a flavor. We had some debridement, some keratotomy, third eyelid conch flap. I haven't done a third eyelid flap in forever. A few hodgepodge uh, topicals, steroids, which are absolutely contraindicated in human herpes, um, keratitis, Um, cyclosporine, atropine. And then we had deworming recommendations, more than one person, vitamin E, And I just wanted this so much to be lysine, but the person said lecithin, so here we go. And then some homeopathic recommendations. And then vaccination, we had some people who said never vaccinate him again and other people who wanted to vaccinate his contacts. So just in sum, what did we learn? Well, everybody used a topical antibiotic, I guess if you call three quarters of everyone, everyone. Fusidic acid and chloramphenicol, most common. But here were the differences. Um, first opinion clinicians, which is my preferred word for what I am, uh, much less likely to recommend TFT and systemic famcyclovir. Specialists more likely to do those things and more likely to recommend lysine. Catzilla. Right, okay, so, um, sort of the segue into decisions is we gave people the identical case and yet they ended up making different decisions, right? So uh, it is of interest to know why people are deciding things in, in certain ways, and I think had we to do it all over again we might have asked some different questions, and this is actually how I make decisions in my practice because it is a damned if I do, damned if I don't situation. What did we ask them? Well, we said, please just give us three factors uh, that contribute to the decision-making, your decision-making in the treatment of these cases. And what I learned is that qualitative um, research is really hard. So forgive me if if it seems to be labored. What do we have to do? We have to read all their free text. Um, By the way, we all need to go to a spelling class. Um, and then sort of say, what did you mean by this, uh, and assign codes. Highly iterative process, once you come up with those, and you um, take somebody who is really a wonderful and generous person named Marnie Brennan, and she goes and looks at all your codes and sees if she agrees with what, how you coded things. We came up with 19 different codes. I'm not going to give you how we came up with all of those, but there are four big ones that we need to know about. So cost was just any time anybody mentioned money, not that hard to figure out. Exam and history was any time anybody said sort of, look, you know, what my exam findings were, what my diagnostic tests, um, how bad it looks, or sometimes subjective assessment of pain. Owner compliance was sort of anything that was a non-financial reason why owners could or couldn't do something. And then we're going to go back to this experience, knowledge, confidence, which was not a code I was thinking we were going to end up with, but it was a very strong code set, which was any time they mentioned skills or self-efficacy that they didn't reference an outside source on. It was just my experience, knowledge of the particular condition or treatment options. In my experience, do I recognize the cause and can I treat with confidence? So that's that little bin that we made. I typically hate pie charts, but this is awful in bar graph form, so bear with me. So, We ended up with 1,252 hits in our 19 bins of codes. This is a pie of 1,252 hits. You should know that I failed home ec not once but twice in my career, so I'm not a good pie maker. Um, But if we say, right, how many of the hits go into this pie? Cost was 19% of all the hits. Examine history, 18% of the hits. Experience, knowledge, confidence, 18%. Owner compliance, 14%. Uh, Next largest pie slice is patient compliance, which was um, can I examine the pet, right, that sort of stuff. Um this is a bit of a mess, so there was no a priori hypothesis that went into this. It was sort of like, let's just see what people tell us. So, And if you look in the literature, there's all sorts of cl- clinical decision-making theory out there, all the Bayesian theory and utility theory, that doesn't fit. Um, prescriptive theory, or descriptive theory, which is how bad we are because of our shortcuts in thinking. And then we have our prescriptive EBM model. So, To try to make sense of this, let's try to bin these codes into our classic Venn diagram. Um, I think that there there might be some controversy about where I put things, but I think we can agree that patient values go into the cost owner compliance, patient compliance. Um, You'll notice that nobody cited an RCT or systematic review as being a high influence in their decision making because they're not out there. So in general, most of what went into the evidence quadrant was sort of different forms of expert opinion um, and then the expertise quadrant has sort of the things that cited that were innate to them in their own practice. I, I'm gonna just give an editorial comment, which is I hate the fact that GP opinion goes there because I sometimes feel that my opinion should go into expert opinion um, depending on the situation. All right, well now that we've parsed these out, let's kind of look to see how much of the pie. Well, expertise is about 49% of the pie. Patient value is 38% of the pie environment 5%, I felt so sorry for those few individuals who said time, I don't have enough time. Um, And then the evidence bit of the pie was just short of 9%. So the next question is, are there differences between vets in terms of what they're citing? And the answer is yes. And it was a, a bit of a surprising answer in some way, but somewhat reassuring. So if we take the bits of the pie that are having to do with patient factors, Um, or the bit of the Venn, it it turns out that um, you have to sort of adjust for what we know, right? Are they a specialist? What gender are they? And are they young? So young was either a vet who is less, 31 years or younger, or someone who has six or fewer years in practice. And the odds ratios on the youth are not meaningful, but it's just an adjustment because the younger vets did tend to be more frequently women. Um, not to belabor all of this, but on the specialist column, you can see that owner compliance. Uh, w- there was about a 1.8 higher odds of citing owner compliance as one of their decision factors. And if you take all their um, different little factors and make them into a summative score, and then do ordinal regression, um, you know it, it kind of evens out. So that maybe a bit more likely to cite owner uh, patient factors. But here we go with men. Um, In every single category, men had lower odds of citing patient or owner factors for their treatment decisions. Um, Put in a different way, I would say women had a higher odds of citing patient factors. and This is actually concordant with what is known on the human side for how male and women, men and women physicians um, rank uh, patient preferences. Um, I don't think it's good or bad, it just means that we're different and I think those of us who sometimes compare our experiences with our male colleagues can sort of see that sometimes. So that's the patient side. What about the evidence side? Well, here we go, Um, specialist opinion. It's strange, Steve, but you guys are no more likely to cite each other than other things, go figure. Uh, References, I don't think that's a significant number, but scientific literature, almost an eight eight times greater odds of citing scientific literature. Um, Treatment efficacy, There was such a tiny number, there's hardly any people in that cell. But the current opinion of standard of care, because that that was brought up frequently, um, five times greater odds of citing that. So their summative score about double. Um, But here again, gender rears its ugly head uh, in that men adjusted for um, being a specialist and their age were again more likely to cite specialist opinion and more likely to cite the scientific literature. Uh, Not really different. I think there might be some interesting hints about youth, but certainly not robust. If you want to look at it graphically, because not everybody loves odds ratios, the GPs are to the left, the specialists are to the right, men are blue, women are gray. I did not stick with the blue and pink theme that I, drives me mad. And again, if you look in the evidence space, men a bit higher in the GPs, expertise no difference, uh, women are a bit higher in the patient, patient space. The pattern is repeated in the specialists. And I'm not going to show you our sources of information stuff because it's not done, but um, there are correlates in the sources of information stuff because um, men, regardless of specialty affiliation, did tend to rank conference attendance and journal articles higher as a source of information. So just to sum, patient domain factors had higher weighting for women. Evidence domain factors had higher weighting for specialists in particular, but men also. And I didn't show you these results because in general, uh, the expertise category didn't have lots of differences. But for younger vets, they were half as likely to cite expertise, right, experience and knowledge rather. I like how the cat is outside on this cartoon. Right. So what's really happening here? I mean, this is, you know, doing quantitative analysis on qualitative data is already suspect. You guys are probably going to put me on the next plane out of here, never to be invited back. But I I think I want to return to the experience and knowledge confidence thing because I think EBM has this, we have a bias in that we think that all of our shortcuts, all of our, our, our heuristics and our fast methods of thinking in a clinical practice are inherently flawed. And I'm here to tell you that um, I have students who ask me all the time how I apply evidence in practice. I'm an advisor to the student EBM club. And I often think, huh, I don't know how I do that. On Because they always say on a daily basis. And if you look at the human literature and you quiz your colleagues, you will find out that none of us use evidence on a daily basis. What we do, particularly as we become expert, is we use um, Shortcuts, we use illness scripts, so we have the story that kind of puts us down a road, and then as soon as we get down that road, we use diagnostic and treatment schema. So in other words, we have shortcut decision trees for how we do this stuff. Now, for instance, this is a patient who came in to see me to ask me, am I a horse? And this is my shortcut flow chart for how I figure that out. No, maybe, uh, yes. Maybe I have maybe two more questions that I need to ask to figure that out. Um, so we have these schema in our heads that we use as shortcuts all the time. And so it's very rare that I'm stepping out of the room to do a critically appraised topic or even find one. So what our people are really telling us is when they cite this experience and knowledge and confidence stuff, is they're just saying, look, what is this? can I manage it? Will the owner and the patient do what I want them to do? And then, you know, given the constraints that they've given me, how can I treat this pet? And that happens very quickly. So when we talk about EBM, what we're really talking about is modification. So we do fast thinking all the time and then Almost all modifications to fast thinking are done out of hours. Now, my friend Meg, uh, she says that she modifies her rules. She's an ER clinician according to the Burning Man rule, which is things that she, she tried that did not work well where she was burnt. That's a Burning Man rule. Never do it again. Um, but we all do that. We, we sort of modify our stuff as we go along. And evidence is what we use also to sort of have an external check on that, what makes sense to us is, is my tree still good? And to give you an idea, um, again, formatting issues, uh, we're not going to go through all of this stuff, but this is how I treated congestive heart failure in 1995. I did actually have to think about it a bit then because I was new. In fact, I wasn't even out of vet school. But this, it was a 1995 book that I was using when I was a new vet. And you'll see that everything in red is gone now, basically. It's all gone. Twenty-one years later, everything in blue is stuff that's been added to my tree. Now, if you ask me how I got there, because I just do this in my head, right? Bing, 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 your heart failure, right? This is what I'm going to do. Um, that was a slow process, and it had to do with me going to conferences and reading literature and being highly networked with a bunch of people because I worked in a referral practice. So this is actually the 2009 ACVIM Guidelines, but I was there in 2005. So, uh, by the way, this is when I do the quality of life discussion right here at this step as soon as we start hanging scary drugs. Um, so I, I think we need to go back and sort of say, do we, we really ask the right question? Because I think we asked people about how they decided things on a day-to-day basis, and we didn't ask them about how they changed practice. And I, I think the tantalizing clue is that how we change practice may depend on who we are. If you think about how long it takes to actually go out and do the ask, you know, acquire, appraise cycle, That is typically done out of hours, and we have an increasingly feminizing profession. So whereas I check a box saying, geek, no children, and I go home and do this stuff for fun, usually watching some sort of television show at the same time, my colleagues who have children and husbands cannot do that. So when you ask medics what they want in these EBM courses, you say, how much do you want the skills of critical appraisal um, versus other things? Very few of them say that they want to learn how to critically appraise an article. That does not mean I don't think it should be taught. I think it should be taught. But what they want are guidelines and protocols because it's a much quicker way of modifying your decision or treatment tree that you can do in practice. So they do ease the burden of knowledge and uh, experience acquisition. By the way, I did start life as an equine vet, so I love this cartoon. and treatments haven't really changed. Are there any equine vets in the room? Right, still shoot, shoot, shoot. Um, so, it, in terms of that, guidelines I think are are even more critical now than they were, uh, but they have to be done right. So here's here's the problem. I have friends who work in an ER ICU uh, facility. It's actually a 130 person referral practice and even they don't read the recovered guidelines. They have a journal club where the criticalist reads the guidelines to them and they all say, right, this is our new protocol. So you cannot have a 20-page guideline that somebody has to read. Um, You do need to have evidence-based and you need to have guidelines that have GPs with input, right? So it turns out that in human medicine adherence to guidelines is actually much better when the panel has included general practitioners on it. They have to be frequently re- revised, so we tend to get fossilized guidelines um, And there was, but we're not the only ones, right? In my country we did radical mastectomy for 100 years, 100 years of radical mastectomy before there was a clinical trial that said this is wrong. And it was because it was an expert opinion-based guideline. So uh, the fossilization of guidelines I think can be wrong. I, I should say that one of my evidence, one of my stimulants to change my tree or to look at my tree is sometimes i listen to an expert and I think, right, I think that's a bunch of hogwash. I'm going to go find out why you're saying that. Um, and, and so I, I think, ah, I'm not putting that one in. That's where the furosamine CRI went, I got put in the bin. It's funny that you and I both have Mind the Gap. So maybe this conference should be called Mind the Gap. So Mind the Gap. Um, this is actually a picture of what happens if you leave the cat food bag out for an hour uh, with a very hungry cat uh, and you forget that he actually could break it. He's a good kitty though. He went in through the top. So I think what I'm trying to say is that I've just nibbled on the surface of some of the things that we need to think about. I'm not going to claim you know huge truths out of the decision factor stuff. Um, But I think we do see that there's treatment variation in the two conditions that we looked at, and that I think we're getting a hint that inputs to how we modify our fast thinking clinical rules can be different between groups, and we may need to think about that going forward. Uh, And then finally, I I, I do think it's very hard to do guidelines, so could these sorts of surveys at least be a quicker way to sort of say, right, what's everybody doing right now? I am supposed to do, this is a paid commercial advertisement. Um, No, I'm not paid. So uh, there is a new CPD that's being offered by the center um, that if you'd like to share with your colleagues, um, we've provided the web links. And I think it's um, Dr. Marnie Brennan who's coordinating this. Um, So that's good. And then I do want to really thank everybody Uh, particularly for people who, you know, just this American vet shows up and says, right, you guys look like I'd like to work with you. How many hours? So um, I think Marnie has literally spent like two hours on this stuff with me. So thank you very much, Marnie. And I think that's it.